Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Welcome, everybody, to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Thomas Jacoby, an editor here at Ignatius Press, and today we're talking with Kieran Troy, who's the author of a brand new book, In the Stars, the Glory of His Eyes, Tales of an Irish Tour Guide in Rome. And uh, I love this book, and I'm excited to be talking about it. Kieran, welcome. Thank you, Thomas. Great to be here. So, Kieran, I have to, as I just said, I I love this book, and uh, everyone who I know who's read it loves it, too. And uh, when we got it here at Ignatius, you know, it was just crystal clear we had to publish it. But at the same time, it's hard to classify. And in fact, I've uh, I've tried to tell some friends, you know, they ask, what, what are some of your favorite books you're working on at Ignatius right now? I was like, oh, I've got this book, In the Stars, the Glory of His Eyes. What is it about? And then I find myself at a loss for words, you know. It's hard to describe. Uh, yet I think it's 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 unique. And uh, so to get into it, I think, uh, why don't we start with the title? In the stars, the glory of his eyes. You know, it's arresting, it's mysterious. And yeah, uh, go ahead. Well, um, I, I don't know if you've ever read uh, the works of James Herriot. Um, James Herriot was a vet in England in the middle of the 20th century. And he wrote stories about things that happened to him as a vet. My, my father used to love his books, you know. Uh, and he, um, they're just separate stories you know each chapter is separate but yet it, when you read them all you're reading a little bit of a, a biography of, of the life of this vet in the country so he's uh you know it was made into a famous series you've probably heard of it called all creatures great and small and the title all creatures great and small was taken from you know a little poem which um how did it go it went something like um all things bright and be- beautiful all creatures great and small I can't remember, and then the Lord God made them all. So he used each of those lines uh, as a title. And yeah. I always loved this idea that a, a, po- a line from a poem was a title for the book. So I suppose I kind of stole that idea. Um, the title of my book is from a poem by a guy called Thomas uh, Plunkett, who was a leader of the revolution in Dublin in 1916. He was he was executed afterwards. In fact, just before he was executed, he married his his sweetheart Grace in the in the prison, and then was taken out and shot. You know, but he wrote this poem. Um, I see his blood upon the rose, and in the stars the glory of his eyes. They're the first two lines. So I always thought that. If I was going to write about my experiences, you know, as a tour guide, I would like to use uh, those f- four, four lines from the first um, from his first verse as four titles, because I, I do have enough stories for four books. Now, I don't know. I'm very grateful to Ignatius Press for um, publishing this first one. I don't know if, if any others will be published. But um, now you might say, why didn't I use the first line? I see his blood upon the rose as the title for the first book. It's just that. This title fits better the content uh, of this book, um, and you probably realize why, Thomas, because you've read the book. But uh, it's um, it's about how these pilgrim groups in Italy um, have just e- e- expecting to go on pilgrimage to Rome or where, wherever have sometimes found that God was blessing them in in uh, unexpected ways, you know. So that line I. 
uh, in the stars, the glory of his eyes, just that we see in these events, uh, natural events of the world sometimes, just uh, a whole a collusion of accidents. Uh, we see these great things happening, blessings, good things happening. So, you know, sometimes people ask me why did I write this book? Um, I, I think that whereas I was reluctant enough to write it and reluctant to kind of push myself into the public sphere. Um, when something good happens to us, we, we want to tell other people about it. I think that's natural. So that's really what I've done here is that um, I picked just nine stories from nine different trips over the space of nearly 20 years. And um, they, they're, they're all blessings. Uh, they're, they recount great things that happened to ordinary people who traveled on pilgrimage. Uh, so basically, that's how the book can be written. And I know what you mean, Thomas. You, <laughs> people ask you, what's the book about? And I, I have the same problem because I've been telling people that I've published this book and people ask me, what's the book about? And uh, it's kind of hard enough to describe it. So basically, my wife, Lara, and I have a travel agency. We've been um, running it now for about 20 years. Before that, I worked for a few years uh, for another travel company. And uh, we've mostly been organizing trips to Rome. Now, in the last few years, we've broadened a bit. Actually, less parish pilgrimages are coming to Rome for whatever reason in the last few years. But in the last few years of the pontificate of John Paul II, and after he died, huge numbers of parish pilgrimages were coming to Rome. A lot of it had to do with, if you remember, the great funeral of John Paul II, which got such uh, wide coverage. Uh, so people saw that funeral, and an awful lot of people wanted to come to Rome and visit the tomb of John Paul II. So we say, and it's actually a statement of fact that John Paul II paid for our, our mortgage on our house because during those years um, all those parish pilgrimages coming to Rome that was the best bit of business uh, the mo most work we ever did was taking people uh, to Rome and down to visit the tomb of John Paul II and during some of those uh, pilgrimages these, these blessings happened um, I probably don't have time to tell you Thomas here because each one is kind of a long story, and uh, maybe I'd spoil the book if I if I told one of them here. So uh, I, I won't the details, but um, basically, just beautiful things that happened, and you could see the hand of God in them afterwards, you know. Uh, and uh, I wrote them down, and I wasn't sure what to do with them, but I sent them to I sent one of them to a guy called Joseph Pierce. I think you all know who Joseph Pierce is, uh, an Englishman who converted to being to, to being a Catholic and uh, he's a great literary figure. And I don't know him very well, but he's been very good to me and he recommended it to Ignatius Press and and, and that's how that's how I, I came to be working with, with you guys. Yeah. No, it's uh we're extremely extremely grateful because this uh you, know, you you and your wife Laura, you, who's, who's who's Roman, right? That's she's, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, you've been leading these pilgrimages for what about two decades or more? Yeah, about about that time. We set up our company in two thousand and one. Um, as I say, I was working for a few years from about nineteen ninety seven with another um, tour operator there in Rome and in Lourdes as well. But um, yeah, it's been about twenty twenty years uh, now. Well, there's a couple of years of pandemic in between, but. Um, yeah, we've done a lot of we've done a lot of pilgrimages. I don't know how many. Uh, 
before around four or five hundred pilgrimages to to different places i'd say i would say what's what's really unique about this book because believe me i mean I'm a, i work for a catholic publisher there are many books about pilgrimages about holy sites many many um and you know they tend to be they can be a little bit they're often, you know, very kind of pleasant stories or sort of triumphant, you know, about the graces that you receive on a pilgrimage and the beauty of the site and the, the, the miraculous events that have occurred. But this book is unique. Uh, it's not like any book about pilgrimage I've ever read. So you, you go on pilgrimage to, you know, to St. Peter's, for example, the Padre Pio's tomb and uh, San Giovanni Rotondo. You go to Lisieux. Um, but it's not at all what I would have expected from a book about pilgrimage to these places. Cause often it's about trips gone wrong. You know, you have late buses, you have long lines, there's confusion, there's stress. And the people you're leading often snap at you and they mock you openly. And you're sort of humiliated, openly humiliated in front of them. And you don't mind telling us about that. But, uh, and then each time grace breaks through unexpectedly, just as you said before, you know, you see this in the stars, you know, the reality of the stars, you, you, you behold the glory of his eyes, you know? And so why do you tell us these complicated kind of often comical stories about these real pilgrimages rather than just giving us, you know, the history of these holy places, the, the miracles that have occurred there? Because so you do that too, but why do you tell us these, these yeah. somewhat awkward stories? Yeah, I suppose, I think that's the point. I think that's exactly the point, uh, Thomas, that w- what happens is that it's in spite of our plans that the, these good things happen, you know, I think that if if the good things happened because we had planned them, uh, it's not really grace then, is it? It's more the good thing happened because I had planned it so well and, you know, my great experience or, or for whatever reason um, or, or whatever help I got that was so so useful. But in, it, it's actually when we've done our best, it's all gone wrong, but something better comes out of it. Um, I mean, I could tell you a little story, maybe, just to give you an idea. And this is not in the book, but I think it, it kind of gives you the idea of what's in the book. Um, it was 2019 there, just before the pandemic, and we were doing uh, one of the last groups of the year. And we were, on our way to, we were on our way to the airport, and I had this group with me, a great choir. Uh, they had sung beautifully all over Rome in St. Peter's and St. Mary Majors and everything. And we were on our way to the airport. And we went to a restaurant uh, in Castle Gandolfo for our evening meal before going to the airport. And while we were there, it was the, air, the restaurant was absolutely jammed with people. Um, and uh, I was anxious. I, I, I always will be anxious on the way to the airport because we had to take the ring road afterwards, which is often gridlock, you know, with traffic. So I was trying to get the waitress just to do things efficiently, you know. But the waitress was... We know her because we've been there many times before. And she was saying, you know, Kieran, this is a really young group. They're different to your usual type of group. What, what are they? I was saying it's a choir. Um, and she said, why, why don't you get them to sing for us? Um, so anyway, I went over to the group leader, uh, Giovanna and Efren. They're quite well known in Ireland, Giovanna and Efren. They're very good uh, choir leaders and musical composers and everything. But anyway, I asked them if they wouldn't mind singing. And they said, oh, we'd love to sing. But after asking him to sing, I actually had second thoughts. I said, no, the last thing we need to do is to sing here. And then I sat, sat down at table with our driver, uh, our Italian driver, and he was telling me, and for the next 10 minutes he told me, don't let them sing. 
He said they'll they'll disturb the other clients. Um, we've got some really well off Italian clients here. We don't want to disturb them. We don't want to annoy them. Um, look at those that table over beside your group, really well dressed. The last thing I want to do is disturb them during a the meal. So I suppose for the next half hour, I was trying to find a way to get out of there without singing. But Anita insisted, and eventually the group got up to sing. Now, I felt I should go over and excuse myself with that table of Italians beside them before we start disturbing their meal. So I went over to them, and as I got over there, I noticed that one of them uh, was holding a little baby dressed in white. So I said, oh, gosh, this, this must be a baptism. And I said, okay, uh, I'll tell you what, we, let's dedicate this song to the baby, and then the Italians will be happy. So I went over and I said, excuse me, are you celebrating a baptism? And they said, no, we're not. We're celebrating uh, a guy who's retiring from work. And, you know, that kind of took the wind out of my sails. So they were all looking at me, these 20 very well-dressed Italians. So I said, well, look, our choir here would like to sing your song. Uh, we were going to sing it for the baby, but we'll sing it for Carlo, the man who's uh, retiring. And the choir stood up, the, the Italians stood up, and I noticed they were halfway through their, their, their meat or the fish dish, actually. And I was actually mortified, you know, that we were <laughs> disturbing them. Thomas, you know what Italians are like uh, at mealtimes, you know. You don't disturb <laughs> your food and uh, yeah. that kind of thing. But um, anyway, they sang... Uh, and I wasn't sure what they were going to sing. You know, they, they could have sung It's a Long Way to, to Tipperary, for all I knew. But they actually sang an Ave Maria, a beautiful Ave Maria, that they had sung a few days previously in front of the Salus Populi Romani icon in St. Mary Major, which is the most venerated Marian image in Rome. Okay, And it was beautiful. And we all sat down. And I was relieved, you know, at least it was short. Uh, everyone was back eating. We could head to the airport soon. But then Carlo came over to me and he was crying. There were tears streaming down his face. And I, I wasn't exactly sure why he was crying. But he said, he said, we're, this is not just an ordinary family group. He said, we're neocatechumens. Now, I don't know if you know the neocatechumens, Thomas. They were founded by a Spaniard called Kiko. Yeah. Very yeah, very active in Italian parishes. They're a great, great organization. I think they're the life and soul of a lot of Italian parishes, you know. And they said, Carlos, we're neocatechumens. He said, we pray before we do anything. And he said, we came here today for my retirement meal. And the first thing we did was we prayed the Ave Maria to, to for the, uh, ask the intercession of our, of our Lady for blessings on, on me and my retirement. And he said, then a choir that we've never met before. Approaches us, stands up and sings an Ave Maria, and he was in tears. And he got me to record into his phone a message for his son, who was sick and wasn't able to come to the meal, to describe what had happened. Because Carlo felt that this was a, it, it was a visitation from heaven on him, you know. Um, so I mean, I sat down and finished my meal and our group did and the choir didn't even know what had just happened just I had known you know but basically Thomas I, I find myself in that position a lot of times over the year that I'm the tour guide and the tour organizer I have a privileged viewpoint of what's happening that other people don't have um, and also I see how I it, have often tried to resist uh, grace you know because yeah. I, I, I was doing my best to 
got out of there, I even had said to Anita, look, we'll, we'll sing for you another time. We'll be back. And I was lying because we, we weren't coming back with that choir again. You know, I just wanted to get out of there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, in spite of that, then God visits us, you know. So that's basically, yeah. that's a short version there. But uh, yeah. I think the other stories are better and there's more substance to them. But that's the kind of thing. That, no, it's, that's beautiful. I mean, I think, uh, well, just for the sake of time, I'll, I'll move on. That, that was a, that was a, that was a wonderful point. I mean, I, I, one of you, you, the, the book opens up in the prologue with a story about you being extremely anxious, you know, as the, as this leader, you know, as, as the guide, extremely anxious that, you know, that at this event that you're hosting, that there be wine for the after party. He's like, Oh, the Italians are going to, you know, they're going to basically, they're going to start burning cars in the streets if they don't have their wine. You know, you're, you're, you're so worried about having a wine. And, you know, you make that, and then ultimately you're not able to even, you're not even able to get the wine, you know, and you're, 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 you're terrified, but then it winds up being this extremely joyous uh, occasion and winds up being much more blessed, a bigger blessing than you ever could have imagined. And, yeah. uh, but I, I wanted to make a point that you are, you know, as people can, can hear from, from your voice, you know, you have a, dis, you have a distinctly Irish accent, you're Irish born and bred, it tales of an Irish tour guide in Rome, but you're married to a Roman, Laura. And you've been working in Italy for two decades. And I think what one of the things that I that really struck me about this book is you're able to you note all these beautiful idiosyncrasies in Italian, the Italian way in Italian culture, uh, especially the Italian personality that I think um, only an outsider who has that kind of deep experience of Italy can uh, could really describe with such uh, with such sometimes brutal accuracy <laughs> and uh that's one of the great charms of this book. And I wanted to ask you, do you think there's a special link between Ireland and Italy? Um, I think probably there is a kind of a, there's an empathy, definitely. Um, it probably has to do with, with our history. You know, in, in Ireland, we've been, uh, I suppose, you know, we've had very powerful neighbors uh, for, for most of our history. So we have... Um, there's a kind of an anti-establishment thing here in Ireland, I think, um, anti-authority and uh, a kind of a streak of independence there, you know. And in Italy, for slightly different reasons, but you have a similar kind of national characteristics as well, I think. Um, the Italians have been, uh, you know, it's only in the 1800s that Italy got together as united as united country and they've been under under a lot of different uh, dominations as well. Um, I mean, there's good, good good characteristics and bad characteristics. I mean, the whole history of the mafia in Italy, uh, you know, arises out of the same history. But um, I think that we do have, we do have a natural empathy. And I see that when we bring the Irish groups into the Roman hotels, you know, we see that the Italian staff, they like to see the Irish groups coming. Um, they know there's going to be just going to be fun, a lot of fun going on, you know. Uh, sometimes a bit too much fun uh, in the bar at night, you know. Um, I mean, this is uh, you know, it's, it's for better or for worse. It's one of the one of the characteristics of if you take an Irish group, it could be fifty Irish people in the hotel and two hundred people of other nationalities. But down at the bar at night, it's it's the Irish that are going to be there, you know. Um, <laughs> It's just <laughs> so we're sociable. I think we're sociable, and the yeah. Italians, the Italians are so sociable as well. 
uh, I'm, I'm probably not a good example myself, but I know that uh, the people I travel with, um, they love they love to chat and they love singing and uh, dancing. And you have a culture. Of, you have a culture of storytelling too. That's know? true. Yeah. Which I think, which is absolutely. I mean, which is in some ways, it's that's at the heart of your voice as an author. You know, you're you're a wonderful storyteller, and that's why you're you're able to you're able to draw out these these personal experiences that you've had as as a as a courier, that's what you call yourself here, you know, pilgrim guide, we would call it, I guess, in the US. And uh, you're able to, you're able to tease out, you know, you're able to capture the drama of these experiences and tease out sort of the, the grace that was being given in this hidden way, you know, by, by God. And uh, that's, storytelling really does seem to be a distinctly Irish, <laughs> I mean, it's not uniquely Irish, but it's distinctly Irish. Yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's true. I mean, I'm from the country and um, my grandmother is dead now, but, um, she used to tell me, and I mean, this is this is a characteristic of the entire Irish rural history, is that in the old days before television, uh, there were just these great storytellers. They used to go around to the houses, and um, they 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 were people would gather, and stories would be told, and the stories would off sometimes they would be fictional, but an awful lot of historical information was contained in them as well. Um, you know, so they were entertaining, they were informative, they were often uplifting. So you know that that you're, it's true that is a characteristic. Thomas, thanks for the compliment. I think um, you know I don't want to be uh, uh, self-effacing in a kind of a uh, hypocritical way or whatever, but I wouldn't be the best storyteller. I mean, my brother, I have a brother, Cormac, who's an absolutely brilliant writer, and he he um, he he writes short stories and stuff but I, I don't have any great natural um ability to tell stories i think what's happened here with this book is that these things happened to me you know yeah. uh, and i was kind of like a privileged witness to them so the stories i think could be written better if i had a bit more of that sort of natural you know eloquence or whatever i, I think the redeeming feature of the book is the substance of it uh, is the actual things that happened, which happened, you know, uh, in spite of me, you know, so it's not really down to, um, you know, the way some people can make a great story out of very little. Uh, I probably have, I hope anyway, that in this book, it's the other way around that there's great stories there and there is substance behind them, you know, that's what I hope anyway. Absolutely, and I, I want to—I want to close. Uh, we're coming to the end here, and I wanted to close with uh, with a question about popular piety. You know, I think there's a there's a wonderful there's a wonderful story in, in this book about um, getting <laughs> uh, getting stuck in a long line uh, of people who is, I believe it's Padre Pio's tomb. Is that right? Of people who are who are, who are rubbing rosary of a woman who's rubbing all these ro- rubbing rosaries. People who are rubbing rosaries on on this tomb. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh, come on, just get on with it. You know, why are you holding up the line? And then you wind up, somebody asks you to do them, a, some woman asks you to do her a favor, and you have to wind up, you wind up having to rub these whole bag of rosaries on this line, <laughs> and everyone's, everyone's irritated with you. And yeah. uh, But uh, they, so many, this is an example of kind of popul- popular piety at an extreme, you know, what we call popular. So I, many theologians after Vatican II, they looked down on what they called, what I just called popular piety. So you have relics rosaries, laying hands on tombs, even going on pilgrimages, etc. You know, they dismissed it as superstition. I'm not saying everyone did, but many did. And yeah. uh, at times in this book, 
for example, in this episode, you know, you struggle with the same thought, you know, a kind of irritation at what seems to be popular piety that seems to be on the verge of kind of, uh, I don't know, almost like a Santeria type understanding of the faith, you know, but you reach a much, you struggle with the same thought, but then you reach a much more interesting conclusion than these, than these kind of anti, anti-piety uh, theologians. And so what is the place of all this popular piety in the Christian faith? Yeah. Thomas, that is a great question. Uh, I, I don't think I have it figured out. You know, I was in Lourdes just two weeks ago. Um, I, I'm not sure if you've been there, but you know, there's the grotto where Our Lady appeared to Bernadette. And um, there's um, it's a, be- it's a beautiful place with the river flowing in front of it and all the candles burning in front of the statue. And you walk, uh, you, you can, pilgrims can walk right into the recess, you know. They can see the water at the back where Bernadette scraped in the ground and the, the waters began to flow, which are still the waters used for the baths in Lourdes. And then they walk around and under Our Lady statue and they come out. So as you're walking in, there's nearly always water coming down the wall. It's just natural um, precipitation of some sort, you know, it's just damp. Um, so I was there last week, uh, and I've seen this before, but I'm I'm always a bit shocked by it. I don't know what to make of it. Um, as people are, obviously, people touch the wall, okay, because Our Lady appeared here, and touching the wall is a way of venerating Our Lady. I feel that's legitimate, you know. Um, then there's the water streaming down the side of the streaming down the wall from the statue, and people get their handkerchiefs and they soak the handkerchief in the water. Uh, and you don't see that that much. It's just the particular group that was walking in front of me when I was there a couple of weeks ago. They were really, they were really soaking up that water. You know. I have to say, Thomas, I, I have an aversion. I have a bit of an aversion for it. I I think that look, it's, it's like anything that it's all in the intention of the person who's doing it. A person could do that uh, with absolute in, in in good faith, venerating Our Lady, um, and, and and then it's okay, you know. But I think that. There, 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 are, there is another extreme, you know, that people are are, are treating these things um, like, like uh, in a superstitious way. Yeah. Uh, so, again, it all comes down to the heart of what uh, is in the person. So, but the story, that, the the chapter in the book that you're referring to there, um, I think in the same chapter, there's uh, a little bit about the House of Nazareth in Loreto. So the House of Nazareth in Loreto was originally stood in Nazareth. You know, all, all the archaeological evidence seems to indicate then that it was <clears throat> deconstructed, you know, and yeah. rebuilt on Italian soil. So it's the stones of where possibly where the Annunciation happened and very po- probably where Jesus grew up. Okay, so... On that particular chapter, I was standing in the back of that uh, chapel. I was just, the group were out having lunch, and I had a bit of free time. And I stood there for maybe 45 minutes or so, just chilling out, really, with standing up with my back against those walls. And uh, for those time, it was just a constant stream of people coming in, touching the wall, okay? And I have to say, during that time, what began in me as an aversion changed, you know, I, 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 first of all, I felt, gosh, look at these superstitious people, you know, very judgmentally saying to myself, 
um, rubbing the wall. But it was clear uh, to me, at least before it ended, that now this is real. This is real veneration of uh, of of Our Lady and of Jesus. These people, they're touching the wall. Is the very same thing as raising your voice in prayer. You know, yeah. it's just the same thing. It's um, it's a way of giving glory to God of with your body. Yeah, with your body, bowing in submission to God. Now I have to say, just two weeks ago. I obviously reverted back to my to my judgmental self because when the people were soaking up the water from the grotto in Lourdes, I did have my version aversion to it again. You know, I, I felt it was um, it looked to me like a superstitious practice. You know, but but um, do your question though, Thomas, about popular piety? And popular piety is a, is a valid thing, and we can dismiss it. And I often have dismissed it myself as uh, superstition and as primitive uh, religiosity, but uh, it, it doesn't have to be. It can be genuine. It can be really, yeah. it's, it's very Catholic thing, of course. That's right. Cause it's incarnate. It's yeah. incarnate. You're right. Well, it is. Kieran, uh, it's been such a, it's been such a privilege talking to Kieran Troy uh, today. Who's the author of in the new book in the stars, the glory of his eyes, tales of an Irish tour guide in Rome. Kieran's, uh, as I said at the beginning of this interview, Kieran's been a, he's been, he's been, he's led pilgrimages across Italy and across Europe with his wife, Laura for about two decades, a little over two decades. And, uh, this book should not be missed. Uh, and I highly recommend, I highly recommend it to many friends and I highly recommend it to you all. You can buy it at Ignatius.com in the stars, the glory of his eyes. Kieran, thank you so much. Thank you, Thomas. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at Ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.